Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? It's all right. This episode is very, very special. Happy anniversary. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're a week late, but I'll take it. No, no, no. Happy anniversary to the podcast. We started this podcast a year ago, the first week in December. So it's been a year already, huh? It has been quite the journey. Uh, When we started this, I really didn't know how to uh, put on a podcast or edit one. And now we have not missed an episode So we've been regularly posting on the first and third Fridays of every single month since. That was our goal. What's one of the things that you've really learned over the last year? Uh, My love of podcasts is strong. (laughs) Thank you, Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) And that there's so many stories to tell in Anoka County that I just, I want to keep going. It's not always been the smoothest editing journey because I'm, I'm learning along the way. And so in honor of that, our next episode here is all about accidents. I could make a rude joke and I'm just not going to. So, <laughs> so accidents, huh? Yes. Uh, we have an amazing collection at the museum of accident scene photographs from a man named William Nelson. Otherwise known as board member Bill when I first started. He took it upon himself to fill a need in the county in the 1960s and go out and take photographs of accident scenes. They didn't have a person in the county that was doing that job. Sometimes the newspaper photographer did a little bit of it on the side, but they had another job. So Bill stepped in and was like, I got this and had an amazing collection of accident scene photographs. It always amazes me when people are in the exact right time of history to do a job that, you know, just before digital and just before color, there was this nice little window of black and white where you could do this yourself, but it still took time to do. And it it just, I love stories like this where you're in the exact right moment to use your skill set. It's a really fun story and they are amazing to look at. Seeing the backgrounds and the moments captured in a person's life that has changed in an instant. We'll have some of them up on the show notes page as well, right? Yes, yes. Shall we hear from Bill how he got got into this and what exactly it entailed onward onward this is vicki wendell i'm talking with bill and janet nelson uh, today is november 4th 2010 and we are at the history center and we're going to be talking about bill's uh, photography project that he did and getting information on that so bill um give me a little bit of information about yourself how long have you lived in anoka county well i've 
born in 1936 uh, in Hamlet, so I lived out here all my life. Been involved, uh, grew up on a farm in uh, in Ham Lake, uh, went to school in Noga, uh, high school in Noga, and uh, lived, basically lived here all my life. What interested you about photography? Well, it uh, started out just as, as kind of a hobby. Um, I uh, always had an interest in it. Uh, I was able to uh, set up my own uh, dark room in the basement of our house, so uh, everything at that time, of course, was black and white. Without a lot of expense, uh, you could go out and uh, take photographs and get home and, and develop them, and, uh, and then with the use of an enlarger uh, and some other uh, materials, you could actually... Uh, Develop the negatives and run them in a larger and print out uh, eight by ten photographs, and this could be all done in a relatively short period of time. Uh, the time from sometimes I would be out taking pictures of an accident scene, I'd be able to go home and develop the film and print the pictures inside of about three hours. That's a pretty fast turnaround. And uh, so uh, this also uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, sell some of these photographs to the news media. Uh, which uh, we can talk about a little bit later. Okay. When did you start doing this? Well, I actually started recording uh, some of the accidents and different things that I, uh, in 1961. Okay. And did it for about uh, 11 or 12 years. Uh, at that time, Anoka County uh, uh, was very limited. Uh, they had uh, one sheriff's car from uh, 242 to the north end of the county. They uh, depended on other people to go out and take photographs. Uh, Joe Perrin uh, did a lot of stuff for the county over these years. He was photographer for Noka Union. I started out doing this really in a very small part of the county and end up over years doing it in just about the whole county. Okay, so how, on how a volunteer did that basis. start? Because all volunteer. But it was how, all volunteer. How, did you have a connection to the sheriff's office to start Well, with, I was or? involved also. Uh, at, I served a couple of years uh, as a constable on, in the township of Ham Lake. Uh, elected or appointed? No, I, I, was a, I was elected, but uh, okay. it didn't take much to get elected for those <laughs> jobs. Then. The very first times that you went out and started covering with photography for an accident scene? Well, I'd have to take a look, but I believe that the first records that I carry is in uh, in 1961. Like I said, it started out strictly on a on a volunteer basis, uh, mainly in the Blaine uh, Ham Lake area where, uh, where I lived, and it just kind of expanded from there. At that time, it was very easy to, to monitor police calls. In fact, I was able to monitor a number of different frequencies. You had to get a permit from the State Crime Bureau to have a police monitor in your car. And I had a permit from them for probably 20 years okay. and because uh, they wanted to know who was listening to their calls and, uh, and why they had a police monitor. But you had to apply every year to the uh, State Crime Bureau to get this permit. Okay. And I think also it had to be okayed by the sheriff. I am... Yes, it was. And that was in the 60s when we in Buster Talbot. Uh, yes. Let's just kind of walk through how this process worked. Um, you're scanning, you're hearing the scanner, so you hear about an accident. What do you do? You would uh, proceed to the accident scene. Uh, if I wasn't called, I would usually call the dispatcher and tell them that I was on the way because they would have to preserve the accident scene. Uh, if it was injured people, they would certainly be removed. But the location of the automobiles, 
uh, or whatever else it may be, if it say was a pedestrian accident or a snowmobile accident, everything had to be in the exact position that it ended and it had to stay there until I got there because once everything is moved, the credibility, uh, it's very difficult to use these things as evidence. Okay. Skid marks are very important. Uh, uh, point of impact, uh, what vehicle's on the wrong side of the road or who went through a stop sign or whatever. Uh, there's a lot more to it than just taking pictures of some uh, fatalities. 90% uh, of the photographs taken of the scene would be the vehicles and skid marks and, and intersections. So did you get reimbursed, or how did you make money enough to cover this? Well, you didn't make much money. You covered your expenses, but uh, the main goal was to uh, furnish these pictures to the uh, police agency, be it the Blaine or Hamlake or the county or the highway patrol, uh, they would have these photographs uh, usually the next day, uh, and they can do their accident report, and they can submit these things with their accident report, and the photos are there on, uh, on the cause, and, and usually you can always figure out what went wrong. They got these things free of charge. And I would be reimbursed by uh, being able to sell these photographs to insurance companies, news media, attorneys, or whoever. Okay. Uh, in some cases, uh, on a serious situation, there might be six or eight sets of them out to different agencies uh, before everything is settled. You know, did you ever run into problems where somebody didn't, you know, there was a, somebody, a bystander that didn't want you taking pictures or the sheriff? That, you know, stories about what happened and how this worked. Well, I never really got, uh, there was never bystanders around these accident scenes. It isn't like it is today where you've got 100 people standing around. We didn't have the population and the amount of people. So there were very few bystanders around there. And usually the uh, police would have them out of there. I don't recall a situation where somebody absolutely forbid the photos to be uh, released or something. Because basically they're taken on public property. We would be very careful that if, say, it was a serious injury or fatality, that uh, pictures were not released that would be able to identify the victim. The only ones that the identity would be able to be available to would be the insurance companies and uh, various police agencies. Now, you never did you have contact with the news media? Yes, I did. Uh, at that time, uh, I would be able to uh, call, like, uh, AP Associated Press or United Press or the Minneapolis paper, and uh, after a while you know who to call and just tell them, well, I've got accident photos of so-and-so. But there was a strict deadline there. You had to get them down there because they, in turn, had to, to take that uh, print and, and redo it for the paper. If it was something in the middle of the night, usually it wouldn't work because the papers go in the press. And they, so it, it was a timing situation. They were just starting to get into color. So I was not into color because I couldn't uh, process it. It kept to the point that if it was color, uh, they wanted it. If it was black and white, they didn't want it. Now, tell me a little bit more about how, okay, an insurance company, they need these pictures for whatever. Tell me how that worked. As soon as there's an accident, and it's reported, the insurance company is going to the police agency and getting a copy of the accident report. And when they seen the accident report, they would also see the photographs that were there, but they couldn't get them. 
And uh, on the back of my photographs, uh, it was always stamped on the back with my name and address and phone number. And it also showed the direction of the photograph and the time it was taken and everything like that. So it was actually legal evidence. So uh, they would, in turn, uh, if they needed them, would call, ask for a set of photographs. And then you charged them yes. for their photographs, and that was how you were able to make enough to cover at least the cost. Right, and it was not a, a big item uh, at that time. Uh, the average price probably was uh, four or five dollars for a photograph, so it was not a it was not a big. Wasn't a gold mine. <laughs> no, it was not. However, if they said no, we don't need them, and then several months later they decided, oh, we need these, or you know, maybe in a year would pass, price. Went up. <laughs> well, sometimes can't charge for filing. <laughs> well, it's sometimes you would get a call back on something that hasn't been settled, and it's two years down the road since it happened, and it's still in the process of litigation issues. And uh, those, uh, just for the digging them out and doing all this stuff, yes, they paid a higher price, but it was not a it was not a real common thing, but it did happen. Now, you had photographs that actually were shown on TV then of your accident scenes? Oh, yes, and also printed the Minneapolis paper. Okay. Did you did they pay extra for that, or was that? No, no. They uh, Once you gave them that photo, if you went to AP or UP, which is the national news agencies, that went out on the wire service, and it was an interesting photograph. It could be picked up by somebody in California or New York or wherever. You, know, okay. you have no control over that. Okay. And do they pay you each time it's printed no, on paper? No, you got a one-time thing of uh, probably ten dollars for that photograph, and then it went on their wear service. Uh, and anybody got it for anybody free. Anybody got it for free. Did your name get a state associated with the photograph? Uh, only in the Minneapolis paper. But it, the wire services didn't. No. Once and it went uh, out, it was gone. No. I had one. Uh, I think of uh, of Zeppelin's Bethel, and that was a one-car rollover, and. Uh, there was a little country cemetery up there in East Bethel, and there was a sign there. I remember what to call the name of the cemetery. But um, I remember uh, AP or UP, uh, the byline was this thing, Death at the Cemetery Gate. Yeah. And that photo went out. Well, Minneapolis paper had it and other ones. But it was just something different, you know. And uh, so if there's something that's like a play on words or something that's different like that, then the thing goes out and you have no clue where it all ends up. Very careful uh, on some of these, whether it be young people involved or children or especially like a, uh, a pedestrian accident. Probably a little more careful with where they're going to go, you know, because uh, it's a much more sensitive issue. These pictures are not of pleasant things. Did you ever go home and wonder why you're doing this? Um, you get almost callous to it after a while, uh, because after looking at so many of these things and also the bomb with the rescue squad, you don't look at it uh, probably the way you should, but you look at more of a job that you have to do and you just want to get it over with. Go home and turn it off. And uh, you just have to do that. We uh, were working the night that uh, police officer, the police chief in uh, in St. Francis was uh, shot. Uh, we were the second car there. Um, somebody that I knew, uh, and 
something like that is a little more sensitive and handling it, you know, than uh, than somebody that you have no knowledge of or whatever. And, uh, but I did have uh, I did have some accidents where I, I pulled up on them, and uh, it was somebody that I knew had known for a long time. But uh, there's really not much you can do about it. Yeah, that's a lot harder though. It is. Yeah. That was at the beginning. How long did you do this? When is, when's the last well, documentation you have? If I recall, it was in 1973, somewhere in there, that I pretty much then the county was doing a lot of this. They had started to get a crime lab and get uh, more equipment and things, and they were covering this. What did you see in different from when you started to when you ended? Oh, a much better job of, uh, of investigating uh, in a, not only on accidents, but it would be a suicide or, or uh, even a burglary or something. The uh, level of the investigation improved so much. And the use of colored film, I had very little color that I used. I did have it, uh, but I didn't use a lot of it because I couldn't do anything with it. I had to take it down. Uh, to Brown Photo in Minneapolis, and uh, it took them four or five days to get the thing back. And, uh, and you didn't have that kind not, of time. They're not going to wait that long. I had one experience. I would go to court. We called into court a number of times because you had to testify that I took these photographs and what they were. And uh, I had taken it was a uh, grandfather and two little kids uh, walking across Highway 65 to a restaurant on a uh, Saturday or, I can't remember, Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Anyway, they walked right in front of a car. All three of them got killed. And uh, I was at that accident scene very quickly because it was so close to our house. And I took some black and white, but also took color. And the uh, first time that I had to go to court and justify those color photos. How do you and, mean justify color photos? Well, because... The reason that I took the color photos because it showed skid mark and stuff a little bit better than the black and white by hand. But anyway, this was uh, tried in federal court, uh, which is quite rare because the uh, state of uh, the family here that was killed were from out of state, so it went into federal court. I'm justifying the colored photographs, and the attorney on the other side is trying to get them thrown out because it says it. Uh, it's dramatizing the accident and all this kind of stuff because they hadn't been dealing with color either. Well, make a long story short, the judge did not throw it out. He accepted the evidence and the color photos were submitted, and it was, there was no photographs of the victims uncovered or anything like that. But it showed the vehicle and it um, it showed the uh, the skid marks and everything in there, but there was nothing there to dramatize it. So this was the first time that that I had an issue with color, and uh, we had it in there. And then after that, it was used quite a lot. Sure. Um, excuse me. One of the most interesting uh, ones that I ever been at because uh, it ended up a mistrial the first time. Uh, the jury could not; they just couldn't come up with fault on this thing and, and all this kind of stuff. So it ended up a mistrial. So about two months later. I am back in court, but the uh, driver is not there of this vehicle. I knew this, but the the jury couldn't uh, be told this. But the guy that had hit these three people on the highway was from Texas, and he was on probation for murder. One of his conditions 
of uh, his parole was he couldn't drink, and he testified the first thing that he was hit a, a can of beer between his legs driving up the road. I don't think at that time that he was even tested for DWI. You know, this is going back a long time ago. I don't think he was. Well, anyway, the trial came up second time. <laughs> Excuse me, and there's no driver. I could not tell the jury, but he was back in prison for violating his parole. So here we have a jury trial without a driver. So what, is, what was the end of the trial then? Well, there was a sizable award that was given out to the family. Absolutely, the judge said that you cannot, because you're prejudicing the jury, if you tell them that he was on probation for murder. But they had a very sharp attorney, and then when he was questioning the jurors, he uh, would ask them, every one of them, that he prejudiced against the guy that committed murder. The message got out, pretty much. It, uh, it legally got out. But it was one of the most interesting ones that I was ever involved with. And uh, Many of these, uh, the day before you're going to go to court, get settled. Uh, they don't want to go to court. They don't want to spend all the money, and they never know what a jury's going to do. So many times, a day or two, I would have a notice to go to court, and you'd get a call saying you don't have to go with that. Okay. Didn't happen a lot, you know, that it would go that far, but. Uh, but they were prepared to go that far. Oh, yeah, they were prepared to go, you know. So. Um, but uh, the county, when they started with their crime lab and, and uh, really got that expanded, and now they have got, they're processing everything right here. Uh, they can do about anything. And, uh, but uh, back. Uh, back when they had years, one patrol car. 45 years ago, it was not much there. What made you decide to take pictures of accidents? I mean... Well, I was just involved with uh, enough stuff, so... And there was, like I said, Joe Perrin was doing some of it then, but he was out there taking pictures mainly for the news. And the county would ask him, you know, to, well, can you do this, can you do this, can you do that? And, of course, Joe would do it. But uh, I just seen that there was a, a need here to do this because... Uh, Joe would not go out and, and, you know, work out the night developing these photos and everything else. You know, he was paid to do his job, and that was uh, one of the photographers and editors for the paper. He's not going to do all this. So I could see there was a need there. And uh, Joe only came out when they called him on him. He didn't sit and listen to a monitor or anything like that. And, of course, with my other involvement, I already had the monitor. I knew what was going on. And there would be many times that uh, if I was... If I was up, and, and I would be at the accident scene before the police got there sometimes. Because uh, when the county was so short-handed, you know, we could have an accident in Ham Lake and that county car is up in Bethel someplace or Linwood or whatever. You know. Another accident on the other end of the county. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, they were spread out so much. And uh, the highway patrol did not respond to that many. And, of course, it's on a county road. They didn't respond anyway. You know, it had to be on 65, and, you know, they were spread out very thin, too. Um, I think it was more of a need that I've seen, a combination with a hobby, is why this thing went on as long as it did. Okay, so it really wasn't a, oh, I'm going to go do this. It was just kind of a evolution. It came slow. Okay. What would you think of it, Janet? Well, 
<laughs> you, there was no stopping him. <laughs> if it was, uh, you know, it was a fender bender, there was no need to go. But, you know, you didn't always know that until you got there, if there were injuries or not. And, of course, um, then there was no cell phone, there was no communication. And uh, I could listen to the monitor and tell if it's really serious, you know, and, and um, what uh, help was being requested. So I know if he's going to be there a long time, a short time, shut down the stove and hold <laughs> <old> meal. <laughs> but I remember one interesting thing. Um, I have served on jury duty, and uh, Bill has never been called on jury duty. And I knew he would love to be there. But anyway, I was called this one time, and, um, and it was a fatality. And uh, I knew he had photographed the accident because I had been with him in the car. I stayed in the car. And I was pretty certain that his photographs would be entered as evidence because they were, you know, all stamped and ready. Uh, but, and, and, but they wouldn't. They were uh, uh, selecting the jury. And the judge said, is there any reason why you think you may not be qualified or be able to serve on this? And I had to tell him, Your Honor, I, my husband perhaps has pictures of this accident. Well, both sides wanted me. I was a hot item. <laughs> I guess they figured I knew something about accidents. accidents. So did you serve on that jury? I did, yeah. Okay. It was uh, settled, though, before before it actually got that far. But I, I was in the beginning. You know, the bodies aren't really what interests us. No. Um, unless, of course, you know, there was an accident. I mean, probably the body's not anyway, but if it were an accident of, you know, a prominent person or something like that, we might look at the accident. Yeah. But more likely, we're going to be interested in that scene down the road that you yeah. showed us that shows a two-lane highway at 65 and four houses along it. Read all about it in the Anoka County Library Minute. Want to learn more? Find a curated book list from the Anoka County Library in the episode show notes at anokacountyhistory.org. I feel like I just got whiplash from the ending there, Sarah. What happened? It was definitely a little bit of an emergency stop. <laughs> they were recording at the museum when we were open. And along the way, you could hear some voices in the background. But uh, seconds after we ended the recording of the, on the podcast, uh, Buster Talbot walked in. That's a familiar name to many in the county. He was sheriff for a number of years, and they just started uh, chit-chatting away. Buster was remembering something, so it didn't really uh, match with the rest of the conversation. And uh, after a few minutes of the chit-chat, somebody just reached over and turned off the recorder mid-sentence. So it was just a choice of, of where we would end it. <laughs> this is one of those lessons of oral history's gone bad. It's like this terrible mini-series we could put together of lessons learned in the world of oral history creation. <laughs> but ultimately, the conversation was important. And uh, no matter how it ends, I love that we got the stories of how he started this journey in the first place. Do you know, we have the entire collection from Bill scanned 
one of our volunteers took that upon themselves. Can you guess how many individual negatives that volunteer scanned? I'm going to go with 234. Oh, way higher. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. 432. 6,768 individual scans. Holy crap. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Meanwhile, they're growing a beard over by the scanner. (laughs) We have all of those scanned and in our collection. We'll have some of them on the show notes page. Uh, Most of them are searchable in our database, um, but they are accident scene photographs. Some of them are uh, restricted because they show very sensitive scenes. I think the most important part is what Vicki was saying right at the end about the scene itself being important, the background and what was going on. So as you look through those photos, take a chance to see those billboards and see the buildings and see the landscape that isn't there anymore because we've built other things on it and the openness of the road. And it's just a really interesting time capsule. I think so too. They're one of my favorite things in the collection. Well, thanks for coming with us on this accidental Lee on purpose journey. One (laughs) year. We'll see you next week because we are not quitting. See you later, folks. Bye. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras, as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.